In this episode, Sharon Virag, Chief Accounting Officer at Genesis, describes her approach to disruptive leadership, emphasises the power of speaking up, and explains why learning still plays a central role in her career today. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Sharon, welcome to the CFO Playbook, and thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you, Ross. Appreciate you having me. Sharon, you've had a fascinating career to date. There's so many different pieces that I would love to explore with you. But when you look at the, your experience and the names and the, or the organizations that you've covered, starting off with places like Deloitte then through into General Motors and GE, and many of those experiences have also been global in nature before you actually landed in your, your current role as Chief Accounting Officer at Genesis. Can you talk a little bit about how you've navigated that journey from being someone who presumably, of course, started off as an individual auditor working with the big four to now running a global finance organization or being a leader that's running finance organizations of more than 200 people. So that huge scale. How have you navigated that journey? It's fascinating how every single experience has something new for me to learn from. And it doesn't matter you know, how many times you do this. I think my career, if you were to look at it, is all about those new experiences and gaining that additional breadth of the things that I've gotten to see and gotten to work on. And so I've gone from public accounting to the regulators in Washington, D.C., to these big companies that you mentioned. And each one was really about the challenge. What was it that I was going to learn there? What was different about what they they were facing, the challenges they were facing, and how I felt I could add value to them? And so I've just been really lucky. I was focused on finding the challenge and also increasing my scope, increasing my title and my span. And I finally realized that what it is for me is about the challenge. And so I, I really don't worry that much about what is my title? I really worry about, am I learning something new every day? Because that's really what fuels me. You mentioned actually the the organization in Washington that was earlier on in your career. So the PCAOB. And what I was really surprised to hear about was that even like now, so that was maybe 15 or so years ago, but yet you still highlight it as one of the biggest lessons from your entire career, one of the greatest challenges. Can you talk a little bit about why even today, what that lesson was and why that still resonates so strongly with you? I'm so glad you asked me that. It's a great, it's a great question that you noticed that because it is a super important moment to me in my career. I think before that I was fairly conservative in my career choices. I, I was very much following a path to be a partner in public accounting with one of the big four. That was what I wanted. And it really was the time that I spent at the regulator, which I originally thought was just to keep me on that path to partner, where I learned to have my own voice and how important it is for you to be willing to take a point of view and be willing to be articulate and sometimes loud and obnoxious about it, right? To make sure people hear you and that you have that opinion that might be different than other people. And it was there at the PCOB that I learned the courage to say, I have a viewpoint and I want you to hear me. And, and it was successful for me because there were so many people kind of talking loudly. This was the beginning of SOX. And I was working on the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and everybody was kind of shouting back and forth across a, a line. And, and I had the chance to work on it and put my opinion forward. And it really taught me courage. And I think that's what has carried me forward and all the other projects I've worked on is that willingness to say I have I have a point of view and, and I think it's the right one. I think we should have more discussion on this topic. We shouldn't be willing to stay with the status quo. Let's keep talking. 
And so I'm still a talker to this day. <laughs> I still I still love to talk, still love to share my view. But now I have the experience, I think, more to back it up and, and really enjoy doing that. With that change, typically, again, if for that to be so profound, there are often a moment or two where you were almost at a crossroads and you probably faced that crossroads of like, do I continue to be conservative? Do I not speak on this or should I speak? And, and at that point, presumably there's some either fear or apprehension. Were there moments like that like in that experience that you can remember that kind of precipitated that desire or the decision to speak out? There was a meeting of the board of the PCAOB and it was a fascinating moment in time because I remember somebody asking me my opinion in front of the whole board and I had a different opinion than my colleagues. And I had that moment in time where I could just agree and get along and be what I felt like good team member and all those things. But in that moment, I felt this was really important and it was really important to me to say what I thought, you know, and I felt like I was in danger of being wrong, uh, very much so being wrong. And, and probably I actually was technically wrong in that moment of with my opinion. But I think putting it out there caused everybody to open their mind a little bit to the discussion and, and it enabled us to, to have a more robust discussion. And it was exactly that moment in time that helped me to decide that I'm going to do that. I'm going to take that risk in the future. I'm going to not worry about sounding stupid. I'm going to not worry about being wrong. I'm going to actually be willing to be wrong once in a while in order to move the ball forward, which I think people have to be willing to do. Otherwise, we all just stick with our our safe spot and, and nobody says the truth, right? And I guess that actually was a time where perhaps the the direct communication wasn't as fashionable as it is now. You know, there are books like Radical Candor and various others that are championing the idea of, actively disagreeing during a debate in order for you to explore lots of ideas and then seek alignment afterwards. I guess at the time, perhaps there was more more of a culture of like, you fall behind the rest of the team or perhaps a supervisor at the time and you don't provoke that debate. You're exactly right that there is a lot more recognition these days of how important it is to, to talk that way and, and to be willing to put yourself out there. There's also a lot of talk about emotional intelligence and and a lot of focus on making sure that you're thinking through, you know, with empathy about the other person's position. And so balancing all of that, finding the right way to say those things, right, to make sure that you're super respectful in the way in which you're disagreeing, I would say is my lifelong pursuit, right? It's tough to do, especially when you feel the power of saying what you think, right, and, and finding the way to do that in a way that people hear you. They're not offended. They're not shocked. They're they're listening and they're open to what you're saying, I think is that's the super hard part and that I think we're all striving for, right? And now that you're leading, like, like kind of flipping forward to your current role and, and recent roles where you're leading these really huge finance organizations and you're presumably trying to create a culture and an attitude within the team where people are willing to speak up, they are willing to disagree in a way that's constructive. Do you have certain techniques and approaches for trying to build that attitude within your team? Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost exactly what we were just talking about, which is the importance of that voice, of what it means to the dialogue and to problem solving, to be willing to continue to search long after everybody else wants to be done with a topic, continue to, to push through it. But that respect is what has to be there. And I love talking to, especially the younger folks, 
especially if you empower, right, we empower our people, are we empowering them with the right skill set to be everything they could be when you empower them? And so, you know, we talk a lot about giving the young folks opportunity, putting them in front of folks and allowing them to speak and share their views. I think it's equally important to spend the time with them in advance to make sure they're successful in that moment of opportunity for them. And so that comes with just open dialogue about how, how are you doing on finding the balance between putting your opinion out there and doing it in a respectful way. Because I've seen so many really powerful people who have great, they just have so much to add to every topic and they come out and their voice is so harsh in that moment that they, you can't hear them, right? All you hear is the strident tone. And so helping them and helping a lot of different women in my career along my path, I've met so many women who have either mentored me on this topic and helped me to find the right balance or that I've had the opportunity to mentor. And I think that's just one of my favorite parts of the job and probably one of the most important. And you touch on that point of diversity that I, that I was hoping we would get to that more and more as well, of course, where like people are trying to build diverse teams and that's along the, the lines of gender, but um, you get into race and sexuality and various other things. The workplace today and attitudes today are probably fundamentally different to the one that you entered, even back when you were in the big four. So is that something that you, again, have seen change over that period and then you're trying to support that push for greater diversity within teams? It's so important that so many different voices are represented. And I think sometimes we focus too much on metrics and things around diversity and we forget that the most important reason for diversity, in my mind, is the value that this tapestry of different opinions and backgrounds and viewpoints brings to the discussion. And so... I think it's all interwoven with bringing all those folks together, bringing that diversity to the workplace, getting all those voices, and then helping to make sure those voices are realized. I think one of the most important thing that somebody said to me, I commented on, on what a fantastic mentor they were to a diverse workforce because so many people said they loved working for him. And, and they said, oh, I love working for him. He really helps me find my voice. And I said that to him. I said, you're a great diversity leader. He said, no, I'm just a great leader because everybody should have a voice. It shouldn't be a diversity topic. It should be about helping people find that right balance of making sure your voice is heard, making sure there's a, a nice, safe place for people to speak up. And you mentioned like how different things were 15, 20 years ago when I started my career. I think Back then, a lot of us thought that in order to be seen as a leader, we had to act more like a man, right? And so we had to, to take a more authoritative tone. But if you really want that diversity of viewpoints, you really have to be willing to open the room up to people who aren't willing to speak with that leadership tone. You just need to provide them some room to speak, right? Remember to go around the room and ask uh, your quieter people what their viewpoint is so that you get that diversity of views. And Everybody doesn't have to act aggressive or act assertive in order to get their space in the conversation. And when you look back at it as well, it's such a narrow viewpoint that assumes that there's only one way to be successful, which is the, the kind of stereotypical, aggressive, assertive way, which, of course, can be effective, but is so outdated in so many organizations nowadays. Oh, I totally agree with you. I do think it's funny when I, I find someone who wants to be led that way, right? If you're, I think for leaders these days, you're having to be, just because of the different generations that you might be leading, you're really having to be a little bit of a, a chameleon, right? You're willing to change for the different individuals. How do they need to be led? And there are every once in a while people who work for you that need to be led that way. They want to hear you talk in an assertive, authoritative voice. And then there's people who you would never get the best of them if you were to speak to them that way. And you have to find the voice that works for them and, and brings out the best in them. 
Is that something that you believe you innately had or is that something that you've had to nurture and develop over your career? Because this is, again, the like the mythical sports coach who knows which players to shout at and which ones to put an arm around. It's an extension of that, of course. It's a very nuanced skill to learn because you not only need to see and be very perceptive about who needs what, but then you need to know exactly the right intervention at exactly the right time. So how do you approach that? That's exactly, it's 20%, 20 years of experience, right? Uh, showing <laughs> through right there. You know, I started out my career with one tone for everybody, right? Like this is who I am. And I, I probably said that a million times in my career. Look, this is who I am. Like I'm direct and everything else. I think if nothing else that I've learned over my career, it's that that does not work for everybody and you're not going to get the best team. You're going to get, you're, you're short selling yourself and your team by, by doing that. And so I think maybe it was the, all the emotional intelligence that I've had to try to bring to my game to try to find that that's helped me to realize it's not really about who I am. It's really about who they are. If I want to, if I want to get the best out of them, I have to be focused on them and what they need, not, not on me and what's most comfortable. I would probably be comfortable all day just being authoritative and, and telling everybody what to do. But I'm certainly not going to get the best for my team acting that way. And, and I recognize that. And going back actually to one of the previous points you made about the idea of that person, you saying to that leader that you mentioned that he's a great leader for diversity, but he said, actually, no, I, I'm just a great leader because I try and make sure everyone has a voice. I can see that that makes sense where you've got the team in place. Were there situations where either you you recognize that the team is far too biased towards the like men rather than women or or to one race rather than another. And you need to like proactively do something to try and bring others through and, and create that balance. Or if they're in the group, they might be reserved because of lots of things to do with context. So how do you, in that situation, make sure that you proactively intervene to bring the balance and diversity to your teams? I'm glad you asked that. It's interesting. I use a tool there's a lot of them around that actually try to find the different personality characteristics of your team in addition to their skill sets, right? So skill sets are fairly consistent, but the personalities in my mind of the team and the dynamic of the team is really impacted by it. I recently have been kind of debating with a colleague about the importance of, is it all about the individual person when you're interviewing and you're recruiting around making sure they have that skill set? Or is it about the team they're entering, right? And making sure that that team is well-balanced. And I'm a huge believer in there's a core set of skills that they need to bring with them. And then I can look to the, so I make sure they have that core set of skills, but then I look to what is the team need. And I'm, I'm not necessarily that focused on the individual at that point. I'm really thinking about, is, does the team need, for example, the driver personality? It's the easiest one to kind of recognize if you have all drivers, right, you're not going to have a really well-functioning team, right? You have to balance it out with drivers. And, you know, I use strength finders. So I use characteristics like woo, right, which is the ability to influence people, get people along and get them working together. You need a driver and a woo, right? You need those on your team to, to balance out and to bring those different perspectives to remind the driver to have good communication skills. So I tend to, to break the, the interviewing and recruiting process into what are the interpersonal skills the team needs, what are the interpersonal team, you know, skills that core individual has to have, right? The ability to communicate and get along. And then what are those technical skills and things they need for the job? So rather than saying we have this role, we need this role, you're almost performing a team assessment to see the context of which that person and that role exists to figure out what type of person you think that will elevate the team to the next level. Exactly, yeah. I mean, and I think it's it's hard to do, to look around the corner and try and do that when you're thinking about things like 
succession planning and things like, like, uh oh, I need, I need a backup for this person. And they're going to, by the way, they're going to have to have the driver instinct because the team is going to need it if this other person leaves, which is, it's just an interesting dynamic. But I think if you can expand to it, that's how you can kind of get that individual feel along with the team, the team success factor, right? And touching on the personality profiles, and I would hate to fall down on the, on the stereotype front, but of course, like people that are in finance are typically very analytical people. The nature of it is like data and truth and a numerical aspect of it. And then, of course, you're having to push things forward all the time. There's a lot of pressure. So, again, there's a bias perhaps towards some people who are drivers and, and have huge levels of accountability. Is that something that, that you have experienced that maybe there is more of a bias towards those two kind of personality types? And if you're looking for those woos, as you describe it, or the people who can be more relationship building or evangelical about like projects and initiatives or the ones who can build relationships in a softer sense. Again, these are just different profile tools, but do you find that there are some profiles that are harder than others to identify when you're trying to build a balanced team? I think maybe it's, I've never worked outside of finance, if I'm honest. I've been in finance my whole career, so I'm not sure. But I would guess that it's because I'm in this field that I feel the pressure to try to find that balance, right? And because there's so many people who have those kind of skills. And to find those other ones is why I'm always kind of on the hunt for talent. I'm always meeting people. I'm always trying to connect and have a really big base so that I have, I know who the woos are, who are also in the finance, and I can have a little bit of bench of those folks in my network and try to build those out. You know, you asked about it in relation to diversity, and I think that's an important part of it too, because sometimes the the finance folks who are diverse candidates can help you, not necessarily to improve your diversity numbers, but because they sometimes bring those skills that maybe others don't. And so that's one of the factors that if you have that diverse network as well, it can really help you to build when you're trying to build that team because you're bringing in those different perspectives that, that sometimes come from the diverse background. And the other part about building the team that I'm sure has been part of your journey, and we've heard from various guests previously to this, is that you can start off in more of an individual role or, or leading a small team. And this is especially true, perhaps not of CFOs and CEOs at your level leading huge organizations, but when they're in scale-ups or, or fast-growing tech companies, is they, they start very small and they grow really rapidly. And with that, the finance organization grows. And so the first challenge, of course, is to become a manager. And then there's to become a manager of managers where you're actually starting to lead divisions and departments like you are. Was that journey, again, from individual to manager, then to like departmental and running the, the whole organization, one that you found challenging? Or was it one that actually, as you get into it, you actually felt that it was something that suited you? I think the most challenging thing in my entire career has probably been finding the balance of how high do you stay, how low do you go, right? And again, I come back to the individual. There are some individuals who really need you to get into the details with them and help them through that. And it doesn't make them bad at their job. You need people who are in the details. Sometimes they want you with them in the details. Sometimes they want you out and they they want to feel that responsibility and they need that. They need you out of their business. And so finding the right level to stay, right, individualizing it with the with the, the the people on your team to make sure that you know where they need you to stay, at what level do they need you to stay, and then ultimately being able to step up enough and step back enough to get a view of things in perspective as a leader as opposed to when you're down in the details. Moving between that, I think, is the biggest challenge of my career is figuring out where is the right place. Even today, you know, I, I started at this company that is in hyper growth mode 
as their chief accounting officer, getting ready, helping them get ready for the next stage in their life, right? Which they're becoming a very big company. And as I came in, I needed to be way down in the details, but already, you know, just after six months, I need to start pulling myself out of those details and being thinking about the big picture, the strategy, where's this organization need to go in the long term. And so even in the course of a year, you know, you're moving from one view to the other and, and being able to move back and forth. And again, I'm only as successful as I am with it today because of 20 years, more than 20 years experience at this point. But I remember struggling with it when I was first a young manager because I knew I could do it well. I knew I could do it fast. I was a, a good performer. So why wouldn't I stay in the details and get it done when, you know, in order to get your folks to where they need to be and in order to enable you to take on additional responsibility, you just have to put in the time to, to teach them and, and then step back, let them fail and help them through it. And you're developing them as you go. And you have to start thinking of development as your job, not the task, right? And that's a tough thing to do. Essentially, there is the art of delegation. So delegation with some level of accountability, because you're in an arena where mistakes, they're high risk because it's like a critically important area for any business within finance. But at the same time, if you don't give people the opportunity to fail, they never grow. Yeah, I think it might be perhaps more challenging in finance than than many other teams in a, in a typical organization. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And it's like providing the opportunity to the young professional and then not making sure they're ready. So I think it's the same thing when you are learning to delegate. It's all about putting in the time to make sure your team members are ready for that moment in the sun, right? And so you you make sure to put in the time to show them what they're doing. You know, you show them once, then you step back and you watch them doing it and then you let them go and be successful. And I think it's where... People have bad experiences because maybe they didn't put the time in to ready their team for that moment where you delegated to them. And then it was a big disaster and painful recovery. And, and so then people really struggle to do it again. And it's really about preparing your team for that moment where you're going to delegate and step back. And I think putting that time in is how you get comfortable with it when you're, especially when you're a young manager. And then thinking about that environment there where you're trying to help your teams develop and give them the space to be able to make their own mistakes. But you're also, and this has been very common within many of your roles within your career, is that you're coming in and you're really being hired to be a disruptor. So you've either been hired to disrupt the status quo or as you're doing right now, is preparing for a level of scale that the company has aspirations to get to. So again, how do you get that balance right between almost the investment in delegation, but actually the huge urgency of being a disruptor? That's exactly the trick. And I think you go in deep in the very beginning to understand. So a lot of listening, but in a very short time. So you're having kind of intense meetings to try to understand what's happening to assess your team and understand who, who has what skill level. And, and again, what do they need from you, right? Do they need you to be in the, the details of their area? If you find any area where you, you have somebody who could actually run faster you make sure to step back really fast and let them run faster, right? And you keep an eye, a close eye on them, but you let them run fast. And then you have folks that aren't ready to do that and need you to be deep. And those folks, you, you just have to carve out the time. I remember starting at Genesis where I started six months ago and, and just working the longest hours I think I have in my career. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm at the end of my career. Why am I, you know, why am I working the hardest at the end of my career? But it's all about really getting in deep super fast. And, and it's a very intense period of growing and learning and meeting your team, building trust with your team. There are still people who I probably micromanage more than I'm used to at my level, but I feel like they 
given the right training and attention and support, they can be more successful than they have been in their past and they're worth the investment. And so there's a lot of people that I make investment in like that because I just feel like, you know, there's some people who maybe don't have the skill set, but there's some people who have the skill set, they just need the attention and the the development. And so, you know, you put the time in and, and help them get there. But the first six months, anytime you're going in to be the disruptor, I think you have to do a ton of listening before you do any talking. And then you have to really quickly be willing to trust your own instincts and put together a plan and begin to execute. So I maybe do a month of, you know, no talking, almost put duct tape over my mouth to keep myself from wanting to jump in on problems. Listen, 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 and then be willing to trust my gut and put together, start putting together action plans and, and executing and helping people. I'm, I'm looking forward to coming out of the six month period where I'm in too deep, right? I'm, I'm into the details too much. I'm micromanaging people too much as, we, as we're as we really ramping up on some of these action plans. And I'm looking forward to pulling myself out now and providing that mentoring role as opposed to the driving all of the different action items. And, and I have just a fantastic team. So I'm really lucky that there's some great folks and they're all working really hard. I can imagine that because that initial period is there's an intensity where you need to learn the business. You need to learn the team, build relationships. It is that, that classical time where a leader comes in and, you know, the McKinsey one would be, you need a 90 day plan. Although I think that might be outdated now, but you've, you've done that many times and each time the context has been different and the role has been different but you've alluded to some principles that you've developed for when you go in. So do you have in your mind a framework or a playbook or some principles of how you're then going to at least approach the disruption, even though the context is different each time? There's a skill set principle at that they talk about a lot at GE, which is clear thinking, right? And it's whether or not you have this ability for clear thinking. And I think clear thinking is really about a skill you can learn over time. And to me, that's the disruptor framework. Everybody there knows the problems already. They can tell you the problems all day, organizing the problems into a story that people can follow, and then taking that story and breaking it down into its parts, prioritizing it, and then creating action items for each of those problems. If you bring that skill set, you are the ultimate disruptor in my mind, right? And, and it's about clarity of thought and being able to sort through the noise and helping people to get on the track. I don't think I brought any original thought about what was what needed to be focused on at Genesis. It was coming in, it was listening to folks, and then it was organizing it, feeding it back, making sure that I had an understanding of the breadth of all the things that we needed to achieve in order to move forward, and then getting people organized into work plans. And interestingly, I wouldn't, you know, I think if you asked people about the difference I've made since I've been there, I think they would say I've made a difference, but I don't think they would, any of them would say she brought an original thought. She really just helped us to get organized around what to prioritize and, and how to go after it. And I think that's, that's the disruptor playbook from my view. So the artistry is in the, the synthesis stage and then the not delegation per se, but orchestration. So saying, okay, let's take all these disparate pieces, put it together, and then we can actually divide it amongst the team and, and tackle it as as a team and as a, as an organization. Exactly, I think so. And and you know, there's a ton of different ways you have to go about it, right? There might be 20 things that would be individually work streams, but you have to think about the overlays like investment, right? So what investment are people willing to make in systems and and dollars? You have to be running that playbook at the same time. And, and sometimes, you know, like I said, if you gather the team together, they know what needs to be done, right? You put together the story and then you go and you help get 
the funding that's necessary, the investment that's necessary in a way that maybe they haven't been as successful with in the past. And so the same group of people that was unable to fix the problem six months ago is able to fix it because it's been organized into a package. It's been presented in a way people understand. We understand root causes at that point, right? We've gathered all that from people. And so I, I really think it's that clear thinking and organization of the problem that is the key to, to moving it forward towards solution. Presumably, in order to have those packages that you describe, you need to say no to a lot of things. And uh, again, I'd imagine there's quite a lot of judgment that has to go into figuring out the right things to say no to at the right time. One of the advantages, I believe, of being inside the company as opposed to working for a consulting firm and trying to help with these problems is that you're inside and you can tell the difference between what would be a nice to have and what is a must and then what is infrastructure building versus making things pretty, right? Because <laughs> sometimes it's sometimes people want things that are pretty and they're willing to spend the money, but it's not necessarily what's going to carry them to, hey, in order to build this next phase, you're going to need to to build the infrastructure a little stronger. And I feel that from sitting within the organization, it's a lot easier to understand, am I on shaky ground or am I on a really solid foundation for, for building and putting the pretty in? You mentioned building systems. And of course, you've always spoken previously about like process optimization and why that's so so important and powerful, because very often you're inheriting outdated processes or dysfunctional ones. And I presume as well, you got some of that thinking, or at least at Honda at GE, who are famous for their Six Sigma and their approach to process optimization. When it comes to systems and processes, is there a particular focus that you have when you're looking at those, again, for the teams that you inherit and the organizations you're trying to build? Yeah, I think there's a couple things that I've learned over my career that I'm pretty passionate about these days. One is optimizing automation, which is a lot of times we'll we'll invest in tools and then we won't necessarily use them to their fullest extent because either you know we really like the way we were doing it before, we want to avoid the change management aspect, or we aren't aware. And then that happens a lot. Or we made sometimes, you know, the way in which, for example, an ERP is sold in modules these days, a lot of times people buy what they can afford, but they don't realize how many other pieces might be available to them at relatively small incremental cost. And so I'm very big on let's take what we have today and figure out if we can optimize it and if it might have all the functionality you're looking for rather than going to new tools, which can be disruptive on their own. From a process standpoint, I spent a lot of my time at GE on M&A though, which is a really fascinating thing when, when you're at some place that has so many metrics and dashboards and things, and that's how you're monitoring your existing functions. And you bring a company into that and you're trying to fit them into it. It is really easy to just go back to your kind of standards, right? Because they fit into your KPIs and they fit into there. And so I wasn't the most creative person when I worked for GE. I think I've gotten a lot better over time at at taking a fresh look at different areas and figuring out from a process standpoint, are there intricacies about it? You know, what is the level of sophistication and complexity and, and what strength, I guess you would say, do the controls need to be for this process? But one thing that I'll tell you that I learned, I, you know, I did work at GM, GE, at Aetna, these, you know, big Fortune 50 companies. And one of the things that I learned was they all do everything differently, but it's okay, it's all good. And so I don't tend to change things just to match what I'm used to seeing because I've seen so many different things be successful over time. So I, I really believe in getting into the bottom of it, right? Look at the controls, look at the, the process, look at the complexity. And then if it's okay, don't break it just to, you know what I mean? Sometimes you just strengthen it as opposed to throwing it out and starting again. 
And um, it took me a while because there was a few times in my career where I tried to build what I'd seen be successful in the past, as opposed to recognizing what is wrong with what's happening today and can we keep it and avoid too much change where it's unnecessary. So I, I think I've gotten a little better at that over my career. It's a very natural bias. I mean, I found myself making that mistake on countless occasions where, you know, you're holding a hammer looking for a nail because you you have done something in a certain way before and your bias is towards that because you're like, okay, we have this problem. Uh, this is it. We did this in the past. So let's create something similar. Exactly. But you're, you're often not thinking from first principles or you're exactly as you said, you're putting an effort where you're not getting the greatest return. Exactly. And so then I, I can't bypass the GE experience too quickly because I was amazed when I saw that you were acquiring at one point a different company every week at Dropbox when I worked there in a previous life. We spent a lot of time when we were considering any acquisition, thinking about integration because it's such a complex thing. And, and frankly, we were a far younger and, more, and less mature organization. And so we were very thoughtful about it. So to see the velocity of how you approached GE, that must have been a, an immense challenge to manage integration at that pace. Yeah, you know, so I was in the oil and gas business and it was for a brief amount of time. But I'll tell you, it was I remember sitting there and thinking, looking at kind of the rollout of these acquisitions we were doing and as they were going to come online and thinking, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to do this? Because it was quite a bit. But the good news about GE and what I believe in and, and really strongly believe in today is, is having a good playbook. And GE had their playbook down for integration to the point where they could prioritize based on, you know, how big is this entity that we're acquiring? How much do we want to do from an integration standpoint? And, and even how disruptive will our integration be? And they could actually very precisely understand and pull back some things from their list. So there was a, a full integration list, then there was the parsed, you know, this is a smaller organization, it can only take these and this timeline. And, and so we were very lucky at GE to have so many tools and such great teams supporting us. So, but it was it was a task, right? And in the oil and gas in, in that time frame, which was, you know, I think it was 2012 when we were seeing that kind of turnover of M&A coming in the door, there was a ton of things that had to be done in order to pull those in. From a finance perspective, we were really lucky they were each immaterial. And so we could work through our list and we could be we could be flexible when they told us this is too small a company for you to go full bore in. Make sure you're gentle in the way. You know, we, we, there was always a joke that welcome to GE, we're here to help. And then we, you know, 50 people would come into a company of 50 people, right? And and we would completely overwhelm them. So the company was very sensitive to that. And I learned a ton doing that kind of M&A work at, at GE because they had all the right tools. And also because there's a process element to it, but what you're alluding to is very much a cultural one as well as that it's the human side of that integration, not a technical one, not a, even on a business level. It's about how do you integrate those cultures without overwhelming the team that is part of the acquired company. Right. The other part that you that you spoke about that I find fascinating, because again, it's a recurring theme, is about the selection of the right tools and, and embedding a greater degree of automation and building those systems. The one thing I wanted to talk about there was the selection of tools and, and that, all that work that you've spoken about is really specialist skill set. You know, you, you need people who understand technology, who understand the right partners to work with. And that's obviously like a very in-depth type of role. So is that something that you typically believe that you need to have within your teams, within finance? Or do you have a partnership with, say, your IT organization as a way to embed that? Because the understanding of technology is with them, but actually the tool is so critical for what you need to do day to day. So how do you approach that? 
Yeah, I think it's both. I think that you, you know, back in the back in the day, right? Things were changing so fast when stocks was first being implemented, for example, and the expectation around around financial reporting and kind of that level of excellence that we all want to have these days. That was changing rapidly over time. So all of us were really forced, the controllership teams in particular, were really forced to get into the detail of the systems to make sure that you were maximizing not just what the automation could do, what the accounting could do within those systems, but also making sure you were maximizing the control structure of those systems. And that you, it, you know, it's always beneficial to you to have as much of your controls automated as opposed to, to human because they're less subject to breakdown. And so we all were forced to kind of become IT, more IT savvy than we probably ever wanted to be because it was moving so fast. And so we had to be right at the forefront of what new products are coming out. I would say the same for the last few years with the new financial standards that have come out, leasing and, and RevRec. Everybody's had to get again in depth with what are the tools that are available to us and, and how to implement quickly and, and in the right way. And so we've all had to become kind of savvy on that. I think the partnership with IT, though, is just as important as having that baseline knowledge yourself, because making sure that your tools fit within the IT infrastructure and that you're partnering very closely with IT, I mean, that's your path to success. If you don't have those things, I think you're doomed one way or the other, right? If you don't know enough about what those tools are doing and how it aligns with the accounting standards and the controls that are necessary, you probably won't have a good implementation and the same thing if you don't have your IT and lockstep with you and a great partnership between the two organizations. I've seen those two come head to head and it's never pretty when IT and finance aren't in lockstep. I think it, you, you can accomplish so much more when you have that partnership really solid. So which technologies do you have the biggest confidence in that can help you at Genesis? Well, I think the ERP decision is one of the most important. And you know, we have actually been looking at ERPs. We haven't made a final decision for Genesis. And I'm finding it really interesting to see what's available these days. It's actually quite different than, you know, they've matured and they've added a lot of features that the last time I was actually ERP shopping, this is new. And so I'm excited about the things that it can do. I'll tell you that at Genesis, we're, we're in a place looking for scale, right? So we're trying to build for a much larger organization. And so that's the lens that we're looking at SAP, Workday, Oracle, and, and thinking about which of those would be the best for us for that, that future view, but also a willingness to go out of the box, which I, I think is an important principle is uh, we don't want to have that customized monster that you end up, you know, for 10 years trying to baby through different things. So we're really excited about accepting out of the box to the greatest extent that we can and setting that as a key parameter for our ERP implementation. We're also, you know, from a tools perspective, I have tools that I, I just love. I'm, I actually bring them almost everywhere where I go. I think Blackline is one of my favorite ones for organizing the clothes and, and, and simplifying the entire process through the reconciliation. So I'm a big fan of theirs. Most of the time I really focus on, I want to use the modules that come with the ERP. I want that fully integrated. Would love to see HR and finance on the same system. I think that's really valuable and enables you to do so much more as you continue to explore the capabilities of your system over time. So that's kind of my bend. There are two questions I would, I'd love to ask you a bit more about. So you touched on it earlier on, you said you're, you've worked harder in the last six months than perhaps any other time in your career. And then you're like, I'm near the end of my career. I should be working perhaps not quite as intensely <laughs> as I am. So what is it that, that keeps you going and keeps you motivated with that level of intensity in your role? I appreciate you asking that. You know, I, you've seen my resume. I retired briefly 
And uh, I thought that it would be a really good opportunity for me and my kids if I took some time off. And then what I discovered is the love of the challenge, right? And and so it wasn't about at this point in my career, it's not about, you know, how high up the ladder can I get? It's really about how can I continue to learn every day? So it's it's finding new things to do that I haven't gotten to do before. And um, I went back to my roots a little bit. When I came back to work, I came back into uh, the chief accounting officer role, even having been a CFO in another role, because I knew how much I really enjoy this building. I'm a builder. I love to get into building the infrastructure, thinking about, and I just find this so fun, thinking about, gosh, how big can we get? And can I build it? You know, can I can I build the foundation for a future General Electric, right? And what would that what would that really look like to be building at the at, in the ground floor opportunity, if you will? Always wanted to go back and all the things that I worked on fixing later in my career. Um, would love to go back to the start and build that infrastructure the way I would want it. And so that's the chance that I'm getting to do at Genesis, which is I'm having uh, the time of my life, having such a great time. It just shows as well, like if you're even if you're burning the midnight oil, if you're doing it on on a project that you find so um, challenging and rewarding, then of course you can be having the, the best of times despite the hardships. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm finding. As a final question, for people um, who are early in their careers or perhaps other like new CFOs, is there any advice that you would offer them as they're trying to navigate their career and become more of a complete CFO and finance leader in today's world? You hit on it just a minute ago with find your passion, right? And so I never, definitely wasn't going to give up finance where I'd spent my entire career and go, you know, go explore flower growing, which I also like doing, but, but is a new skill for me. Uh, it was really about finding my passion within the career that I've built over time. And that took, it took some soul searching to really understand that what I enjoy doing is that building. And, and um, fortunately, I had a little bit of time off and clear was clear headed on my own career enough to say, gosh, I really love doing that. I'm going to stop worrying about all the other things. I'm going to go and and find something that allows me to do that. And I think that everybody, even younger in your career, I think for you to spend the time as part of your own development, focused on, gosh, what do I like doing every day? And how can I steer my career towards that thing I like doing? I remember early in my career, I really hated writing white papers. <laughs> I really hated it. Uh, that's what you do when you're in public accounting as you write white papers. And so going to Washington as, for, as a, you know, the regulators there, that was kind of a silly thing to do because I really didn't like white papers. But I found, you know, I found a lot to learn in that location. So sometimes, sometimes you just decide I'm going to do this because it's for the best of my career. But it, always keep in mind what you really enjoy and make sure that you're you're prioritizing that because you know you don't want to get back at the end of your career and realize that you never found that thing because you probably didn't reach your full potential if you didn't find it. So you've got to make that a priority. That's great advice. Sharon, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you joining us. If there's any of their listeners that would like to follow you or connect with you, is there anywhere they can do that in particular? Yeah, I'm a big user of LinkedIn. So they're welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn and I would enjoy hearing from them. Great. Okay, Sharon, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate everything. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.